Welcome to Living Truth Radio, a ministry of Living Truth Christian Fellowship with Pastor Michael Lance. It is our goal to build up believers and reach out with God's truth to all people. Now here's today's message with Pastor Michael. Would you take your Bible? Hold a place in Acts 22. I will tell you, just to let you know, a lot of this is going to be preamble. And that, is, that means we're going to build the idea of what a trial is and how we can move through trials, and then we'll get to our main text, which is going to be fairly short today. But the message is Paul's trials, Paul's trials. So you want Acts 22, and I'll just tell you ahead of time, go ahead and turn to Psalm chapter 10 as well, Psalm 10. Let's pray one more time. Father, we thank you so much for all the precious people that have gathered on this Sunday in your house to worship your name. Thank you that you are in the midst of your people. Thank you that you've made a promise that we can stand upon that you will never leave us, nor will you ever forsake us. Thank you that you are faithful to your promises. It's impossible for God to lie. And even when we are going through very weighty trials, we know that you are faithful to your word. We ask, Lord, right now that you would give us ears to hear and a heart to respond to your word in obedience that we would be both exhorted and encouraged by your word, that as we talk about trials and testing and things we go through in this life, that you might encourage your people to stay the course, to endure through it, to have proven character and thus hope. And we know hope will not disappoint. So we look to you now. Lead us by your Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul's trials. Let's define what a trial is. A trial literally in the Greek means to put to the test or put to the proof. And so when you go through something, it can be character building or it can show what's inside of you. So uh, sometimes when you hear about tests or trials, it literally has the idea of testing the metal. There was some ladies doing a Bible study and they were interested in a a verse they saw in the Old Testament about the refiner's fire. So they saw a silversmith and they wanted to know more about his process. And he he showed them a a piece of silver and how he deals with it and how he puts it into the fire. And and they said, do you need to watch over it? He says, oh, I, I need to watch over it very closely so that it doesn't get too hot and thus be destroyed. And they said, well, what's the process? And so he says, well, I chip away and I refine and I scrape the dross off and I scrape it off and I get it right to the right temperature. And he said, oh, one more thing. I know it's done when I can see my image reflected in that vessel. And that's what God is doing through trials. But not all trials are easily explainable. And let's, let's be honest. We all probably ask the why question in our trials. Uh, Even if we don't want to admit it before our Christian friends, look, we ask why. And is it biblical to ask the question why? Psalm 10 verse 1 shows us one example. Psalm 10 1 says, Why dost thou stand afar off, O Lord? Why dost thou hide thyself in times of trouble? I mean, look, that's how we feel sometimes. Turn over to Psalm 22. Verse 1, this is familiar to many of you, but this is David writing, but somebody else quoted this in the New Testament. David writes Psalm 22, verse 1, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And over and over again, I think that you can find in the Bible people honestly wrestling with the why question. And I think it's reasonable 
to ask the why question. Now, is it always easy to discern why we're in a trial? The answer to that is sometimes it is easy and sometimes it is hard. Let me just give you a few things up front. Sometimes trials are the cause of us. In other words, we are in a storm because we have caused the storm. If you read the book of Jonah, we're studying it on Friday mornings at our men's Bible study. Jonah is in a storm because he has run from God. And he has tried to flee from the presence of God because he doesn't want to do the job God has called him to do. And that is to preach to Nineveh, the capital of Assyria. Those people are wicked. They've done harm to a lot of people. And frankly, Jonah doesn't want them saved. Ever been there before? No, I'm not going to do that. God says, go. Jonah says, oh, no, I won't go. Okay. So he tries to flee away, tries to go as far west as he can to a place called Tarshish, and he's, he's paid the fare. He got onto the boat, went down, down, down goes Jonah. One pastor said, whenever you're running from God, the devil will always make a ship readily available. And there he went. And the storm, and the Lord hurled a storm on the sea. And the seamen, experienced sailors were like, man, we haven't seen this kind of stuff before. And the ship was about to break apart. And everybody started calling on their God. It's been said there's no atheists in foxholes. And there's no atheists in ships that are breaking apart. And they found Jonah down in the hole of the ship sleeping. And the captain said, what are you doing? Wake up and call on your God. Everybody else was praying. The only person not praying in Jonah 1 is the prophet. And Jonah finally tells them, well, this is, they start grilling him. He says, this is where I'm from. I'm a Hebrew. I fear the, the God of Israel. Do you really? Why are you running from him then? And the pagans on the boat, once they hear the story of Jonah, they say to him, how could you do this? You ever had an unbeliever rebuke you? Aren't you a Christian? How could you be... D- Unbelievers sometimes rebuke believers. Shouldn't you be acting this way? Aren't you a follower of Christ? And so they tried to row against it, but it got worse and worse. And Jonah says, they said uh, to Jonah, How can, what can we do to make the sea calm for us? What can we do to you? <laughs> Don't you like that? And Jonah says, well, I think you need to throw me overboard. I think Jonah's ready to die. And as soon as they threw him overboard, the sea became calm and... Jonah was out there in the sea, but God had God speaks fish, by the way. He spoke to a fish. He speaks the fish language. And that he, I got an assignment for you. And the prophet was swallowed up. The fish was not a judgment of God. It was Jonah's salvation. It was to get him to the destination God wanted him to go to in the first place. We can make it harder on ourselves if you want to. You say, well, it's kind of cool. You got to ride in a fish. Yeah, but it was sticky and it was slimy and it was smelly. Acid of the the fish's stomach probably took away his nice tan that he had going on. Seaweed hat. And then he says, okay, Lord, I'll do what you want me to do. Sometimes that's what it takes. Sometimes we're in a storm. And frankly, Jonah says in Jonah 1.12, I know this storm is because of me. (laughs) Well, that's a pretty easy category, right? We've all probably created our own storms. And we know that that's the way it works sometimes. But... But that's not all storms. Right now, uh, in your bulletin, there's the story of Miriam Ibrahim. We introduced this to you a couple weeks ago. Some of you have been following it. She is in a Sudanese prison right now, just having given birth to a baby girl, 18-month-old son with her. 
the Sudanese government has determined that she should die because she married a Christian man, which they consider adultery, and because she has basically blasphemed her faith by leaving Islam, which she said she was never a Muslim to begin with. And so there's been a lot of pressure from the international community, from the United States, and the good news is as of this morning or even last night, there are reports that the Sudanese government is saying they will release her within a couple of days. Amen? Praise the Lord. But, but there are some conflicting reports and we need to continue to pray. So let's do it right now. Father, we lift up Miriam to you. As a congregation, we know you honor prayer. We ask for her release in the name of Jesus. Please protect her health until she's out of there. Let her witness continue to shine for you. She has refused to renounce her faith in Christ. She said, whatever happens to me, I will not renounce my faith in Christ. And thank you for her stand. Please, Lord, be merciful to her, her husband. And we know there are many more who are suffering and languishing in prisons. Many of them are names we don't even know. But we ask, Father, that you would be merciful and use this story as encouragement to those who um, are hopeless without Christ. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. There's a second thing about trials I just want to mention. Sometimes we think our trials are never going to end. And they do end. And, you know, we go through seasons of life and we, we, we're going through something and we say, Lord, is there ever going to be a reprieve from this moment in my life or this season of my life? And we know that one day, even if this side of heaven, it never gets easier for you. We know one day that the Lord's going to wipe away every tear from our eyes. The trial is going to end. But for most of us, when we're going through something, it may end unexpectedly. We might see the grace of God show up in new ways that we couldn't have imagined. Sometimes when we're going through a trial, we think, you know what, it's over. My life's always going to be in this direction. And then God does something surprising with his grace. And I've seen him do that in my life over and over again. You guys heard that we went on a motorcycle trip last weekend. We went to Calvary Chapel, Cedar City, and we went through Zion National Park. And uh, we had 14 of us from the church. And we heard a story of a couple in Las Vegas. One of the couples on the ride knew a couple in Las Vegas who, uh, they were going through a, a difficult time. The wife was in a hospital room in Las Vegas. She had just given birth to a baby daughter. And she had unexpected bleeding during the procedure. And they couldn't find the source of the bleeding. And she died two times on the operating table. Well, we found out that we were going to go through Las Vegas on our way up to um, Utah. And so the member asked, can we stop at this hospital room? I've talked to this husband. And this is what's happened. And he, they're open to spiritual things. And I want to minister to him. We said, sure, that's why we're doing what we're doing. So we stopped at the hospital room. And all 14 of us crammed into this hospital room. And, and there was um, two uh, the pretty young folks that are probably in their mid-20s. And, and she has just gone through this terrible time. And the husband articulates to us that the, though they've been able to get to the source of the bleeding, she's got a lot of gas that's built up and stuff. And, and they're not sure if she's going to make it, even as she's there conscious before us. And so we said, well, we're here to pray, but we're also here to 
to explain the gospel. And it was so neat because I began to introduce the gospel to them and it seemed like everybody in our party was chiming in about what the Lord God has done for them. One by one, young people and in between and older people were giving testimony to the faithfulness of God and that couple was receiving that testimony. They asked for Bibles and we prayed for them. And we weren't sure what the medical diagnosis was going to be, but the next day that young lady was released from the hospital. Praise God. You know what? God God is just awesome, but oftentimes he'll use trials to maybe get us back close to him. Have you noticed? Or sometimes trials or tests are where faith is born. Sometimes it's easy to live without God until you face something difficult. Uh, I was listening to Ravi Zacharias, and he was talking about G.K. Chesterton, who is an intellectual who eventually became a believer. I think it was an atheist or an agnostic. And some in the intellectual community were pressuring Chesterton, saying, well, what about evil and suffering? What, what do you do then, buddy? And he said, well, look, if you can give me something that I'm supposed to turn to, when you guys tell me to turn away from God, if that's your answer, oh, maybe you should forsake the God of the Bible. After all, you can't explain all the suffering in the world. Chesterton said, well, then give me something to turn to. But if you're telling me to do what Job's wife said, to curse God and die, no thank you. I don't understand everything that happens in this world. I don't understand all the trials and the suffering that happen, but I'm not turning away because there's no place else to go. And he has proven himself over and over again that he is faithful. In his autobiographical book, A Turtle on a Fence Post, business leader Alan Emery tells of accompanying his friend and mentor, Ken Hansen, to to visit a hospitalized employee. The patient lay very still, his eyes conveying anguish. His operation had taken eight hours. Recovery would be long and uncertain. Alex Ken quietly said, you know I've had a number of serious operations. I know the pain of trying to talk at this moment. I think I know the questions you are asking. And I want to just add something else if you're a note taker. When you go through a trial, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1, that uh, trials can give us opportunities to minister to others the comfort with which we've been comforted by God in our own trial. So sometimes we go through something and we think, well, Lord, what are you doing? And we come out the other side and our faith is proved more precious than gold. And then we can tell somebody else, you know what, you can make it. I've been through something similar, and I can tell you God is faithful. And so he says, I know the questions you are asking. There are two verses I want to give you. Genesis 42, 36, Ken Hansen said to this patient in Romans 8, 28. He said, we have the option of these two attitudes. We need the perspective of the latter. Hansen turned to the passages in his Bible, and he read them. Then we prayed and left. Alan Emery never forgot those two verses as he watched Ken minister to this patient nor should we. The choice is this, to be beat up or to be upbeat. To say with Jacob in Genesis 42, 36, all things are against me. Or to say like Paul in Romans 8, 28, God works all things, remember, together for good to those who love him and to those who are called according to his purpose. This writer says, the perspective you choose will color your life completely and thoroughly. Will it be gentle tones of grace and providence or harsh slashes of despair and emptiness? You get to choose. And that's why our faith, when it is tested, it reveals what's inside. It brings out 
Romans 5 says, proven character, and proven character brings hope. Please go to the book of James for a second. James chapter 1. Many of you are familiar with this section, but I want to highlight something that you may have glossed over in the past, at least I did. And here's what James says. James 1 verse 2. He says, consider it all joy, (laughs) or pure joy. James 1 verse 2, my brethren, when, not if, but when you encounter what? Various trials. See, here's what you need to know. You need to know that the testing of your faith produces something. What does it produce? Endurance. Now, if you've ever tried to get in shape or work out or train for an event, you know that endurance doesn't come just automatically, right? If you want to build endurance, what do you have to do? You have to pass through thresholds. And so sometimes you start a workout regimen and your body's going, what are you doing? You, you eat donuts and things like that. What are you doing on this piece of equipment that keeps rotating and you have to keep up with it? Right? And everything in you may want to quit, but every time you pass through a threshold, what happens to you? You build endurance. Now look what James says. He says, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect result. Not just the test, but when endurance begins to be acted out in your life, you hang in there, you persevere. The perfect result is that you may be perfect and complete, would you notice? Lacking in nothing. Now you say, but how do you consider it all joy when you're going through a trial? I mean, if I hit my thumb with my hammer, I don't say, hallelujah, praise the Lord. I'm so glad. I know God's going to work this out for good. No, we're not talking about a silly, unreal approach to life. We're talking about an inner calm and joy even when you're going through a trial. That's what James is saying. Because trials or a putting to the test produces growth in your life. It helps us to become more mature. But some of you may be saying, but that doesn't explain all trials. I mean, what about the unexplainable things in life? And there is something else I want to give to you, and it's this. We live in a fallen world, and that's a pretty broad category, but there are many things that happen in this world just because it's fallen. Sometimes people do evil things because we're in a fallen world, and sometimes people get sick and die young, and we can't always explain it, but it's because we live in this cursed creation. But it reminds us when we're going through trials and facing the brevity of life, not to live only for that which is temporal. In his commentary on Ecclesiastes, uh, Riken writes these words about Thomas Boston, and he says as he was studying in seminary, this guy's prolific writing touched him deeply. He talks about what Thomas Boston went and his faithfulness over a 25-year pastorate through some terrible trials. He was faithful to pastor for 25 years in a rural parish. He says, Thomas Boston was a melancholy man prone to seasons of discouragement in the Christian life. He was often in poor health, even though he never missed his turn in the pulpit. His wife suffered from chronic illness of the body and perhaps also the mind. But perhaps the couple's greatest trial was the death of their children. They lost six of their ten babies. One loss was especially tragic. Boston had already already lost a son named Ebenezer, which in the Bible means hitherto hath the Lord helped us. When his wife gave birth to another son, he considered naming the new child Ebenezer as well. Yet the minister hesitated. Naming the boy Ebenezer would be a testimony of hope and the faithfulness of God 
Have you ever been here before? But what if the child died too? And the family had to bury another Ebenezer. That would be a loss too bitter to bear. But by faith, Boston decided to name his son Ebenezer. Yet the child was very sickly. And despite the urgent prayers of his parents, he never recovered. As a grieving father wrote in his memoirs, it pleased the Lord he also was removed from me. After suffering such a heavy loss, many people would be tempted to accuse God of wrongdoing or to abandon their faith, or at least to drop out of ministry for a while. But that is not what Boston did. He believed in the goodness as well as in the sovereignty of God. So rather than turning away from the Lord in his time of trial, he turned toward the Lord for help and comfort. Boston's perseverance through suffering is worthy not only of our admiration, but also our imitation. One way to learn from his example is to read his classic sermon on the sovereignty of God, which is one of the last things he prepared for publication before he died. Boston called his sermon the crook in the lot. It was based on the command and the question that we read in Ecclesiastes 7.13. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? Close quote. You see, we do have choices as we go through life and we can choose our attitude and we're not always going to understand everything, but we can understand that God is sovereign And he often uses our struggles to do something deeper that we can't always see. Back to the book of Acts, a story about a young boy. He saw a butterfly struggling to emerge from its cocoon. It was straining with all its might to get out of the opening, but it was too small. Well, thinking he was helping the butterfly, the boy took his knife and he slit the cocoon. But to his dismay, the butterfly emerged with small and shriveled wings. He was unable to fly and within A short time, he was dead. When the boy asked his father about it, his father explained that the butterfly needed the struggle to get out of the cocoon. For this was the process that developed its wings and made it strong enough for flight. In trying to help by relieving the butterfly of its painful struggle, he had actually deprived it of that which was necessary for its development and even its very life. The same principle carries over into all human life. The struggles and trials we face actually serve for our development, not only in the physical realm, but also in the spiritual as well. And sometimes we do, you know, we want to ride in on our white stallion and save everybody. Like Mighty Mouse, who remembers Mighty Mouse? Here I come to save the day. And we ride in. And we have good intentions when we do that. But if we try to remove every struggle from everybody maybe we might be undoing what God wants to do in their life. And so here's Paul. He has gone through his trials and struggles. He says, many plots and many trials I've gone through, tears, uh, all these people trying to take me out. And Paul, as we left him last time, had been beat up in the middle of Jerusalem, falsely accused, and the Roman army was carrying up the steps to the fortress of Antonia. Do you guys remember that? He was beaten, bloodied. People were trying to get at him, and the Roman commander was trying to figure out what was going on, and some people were yelling one thing and another, and Paul stopped him, and he said, can I speak to the people? Okay. So from the top of the steps, Paul began to preach. And as soon as he mentioned his mission to the Gentiles, everybody got upset again. <laughs> they were trying to grab at him. And they carried Paul into the barracks of the fortress of Antonia. And the commander was trying to figure out what was going on. So he was going to beat the truth out of Paul. And he took the Roman flagellum and he was about to beat him. And Paul said, hey, can you beat a Roman citizen without a trial? Oh, you're a Roman? Okay, hold on a minute, right? 
And so there was a little fear, but they were tr- still trying to find out who this guy was and why the riot and everything that's going on. So we pick up the story, Acts 22, verse 30, Paul's trials. It says, but on the next day, Acts twenty-two thirty, wishing to know for certain why he had been accused, why Paul had been accused by the Jews, he released him. So it would appear that Paul was in chains for a while and ordered the chief priest and all the council to assemble and brought Paul down and set him before them. Now this could be a formal meeting of the Sanhedrin, the leading council of the Jews, both spiritually and legally. They were the top brass, many aristocrats, wealthy men, religious men. And they had 71 of them. It was 70 plus the high priest, 71. And they met in a place called the Hall of the Hewn Stone. When they formally met, they were all in their regalia. They would sit in a semicircle and the accused would stand there and they would, there would be questioning and testimony. I'm not sure if that's what happened or if the Roman commander just said, hey, they're probably the best people I can find out from what this guy is about and what he's done. If you would like to listen to this message, or if you would like more information about the ministry of Living Truth, please visit our website at livingtruthcorona.org. That's livingtruthcorona.org. In Acts 22.30 through 23.11, the Apostle Paul is before the Sanhedrin, the ruling council. And what's interesting about this exchange is that the Apostle Paul may have been a member of the council at one point. We don't know for sure, but we do know he was a prominent Pharisee. And so it's interesting to think about that he may have been a member of this particular council, which probably would have made them even a little bit more angry with him. And of course, he became a main persecutor of the church, and now he's the main spokesman of the church. You know, we're familiar with the story, I believe, or you will be when you listen to these messages. And um, Paul is in there being confronted by the high priest. And basically an argument between the Sadducees and the Pharisees occurs. And there's a different theological uh, persuasion between the two. And so they start arguing, kind of takes the pressure off of Paul. There's a great dissension, though. And uh, the commander was afraid that Paul was going to be torn in pieces. This seemed to be the, the, the modus operandi for, for Paul. It, it seemed to be status quo that his life was always in danger. And so he's brought into the barracks. And on that night, as we saw in Acts 18, once again, our gracious Lord comes to Paul. The Lord stood at his side. You know, in the previous account in Acts 18, um, it appears to be a vision. But in Acts chapter 23, in verse 11, and I want to give this to you to encourage you. It said, the Lord stood at his side and said, Take courage, for as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause, and the gospel is his cause, it's the cause of Jesus at Jerusalem, you must witness at Rome also. By that, those very words, there are several things going on. One, the Lord is faithful. He will never leave us or forsake us. And you need, my brother, my sister, I need right now just to park there and say, he's never going to leave my side. I can't always perceive his presence. I don't always feel his presence, but he is faithful. He will never leave you and he will never forsake you. And there he was at Paul's side, encouraging him. He said, take courage. Don't be afraid. You are You've witnessed here, you've been faithful, and you are going to witness at Rome. And that assured Paul that he would make it to Rome. 
As this book unfolds, he will make it to Rome, though not the way he suspects, through actually a shipwreck. But the Apostle Paul will finally make it to Rome, and he will give witness to this gospel, not only at Jerusalem, but in Rome. Call Rome the epicenter of the world, and Paul would be there. Thank you.